HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This piece was brought to you by Roberta's, robertaspizza.com. This is Jimmy Carboni, the host of Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. I've been a part of the HRN community for 10 years. After all that time, I'm constantly inspired by the incredible voices of our network. Each week, I record my show in the HRN studio because I'm excited to bring you, our listeners, the most important stories from the world of beer, food, cider, and more. All of us here at HRN make food radio because we love it. This year, HRN is celebrating its 10th anniversary, but we need your support to keep food radio going strong for the next decade. Join the HRN community today by becoming a member. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate right now. You can even show some love from my show by selecting Beer Sessions in the designation drop-down menu. Thanks for listening to HRN. Hey, 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 welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. Hey guys, it's Tuesday, June 11th, 2019. This is a special show. Today we're going to be talking about cider. Our good buddy Andy Brennan of Aaron Burr Cider has written a book called Uncultivated, Wild Apples, Real Cider, and the Complicated Art of Making a Living. And I think it's a big deal. I think it's a big deal for the world of food and beverage and, in particular, cider. So we, we put together a show today. Um, we're going to introduce ourselves because there's uh, some very interesting people from the cider world here that many of you may not know, but you all should know. So let's start with the editor. I'm Ben Watson. Uh, good to see you again, Jimmy. I'm, I'm uh, the, as you say, edited uh, Andy's book, but I'm also a longtime cider fancier. wrote a book uh, about 20 years ago now, believe it or not, called Cider Hard and Sweet, and still in print third edition, um, and I'm active with uh, lots of other things, like Cider Days, Franklin, Franklin County, County, Cider. County, Massachusetts, yeah. Yep. First weekend in November, 25th yeah, anniversary. Great stuff. We year. had you on in 2015, a really nice show. It's great to have you back. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. And a, a cider influencer turned cider maker. I am Ron Sansone. I am a cider maker from Connecticut, Spoken Spy Cider Works in Middletown, cider journalist. And you brought us some of your ciders. I brought some be cider, too. A, a Kingston Black... Single varietal that was a uh, best in class at Glencap. That's great, man. There's a lot to talk about in the show, but um, we're going to skirt over the book a little bit, but mostly talk about what's in our glass and a little bit of cider world. And the author himself, 
I'm Andy Brennan. I am um, the farmer, founder, and fermenter of Aaron Burr Cidering, which is uh, 75 miles north and west, just as you enter the Catskills. And um, we have a little homestead farm, and we produce a small amount of cider. But uh, let me just say I'm honored to be among, here with the three of you. So thanks for having me on. Well, it's great. Last time we were, we were with you on the radio, we went up to, to your place in Worsboro in Sullivan County, New York. We did On the Road uh, with Beer Sessions Radio. And the, the theme of that, that region's episode was called Edge of the Wild. As we drove up, we, we felt that wildness. You know, you talk about wild apples, but just tell us, like, in your words, you know, what, what is your part of Sullivan County? Why, why would I say it's on the edge of the wild? Well, there is a ridge which separates the Catskills from Sullivan County, and that ridge really does act as an edge. Um, and uh, as you could even see this from uh, Google Earth, it's uh, you've got this heavily populated uh, New York metropolitan area, and then... There's a ridge, which I am behind, and then you've got the wilds of the Catskills. So it's, uh, uh, yeah, I feel like I where I live is between two worlds. No, we, we drove up there, and we, we felt it right away, and it called to us the edge of the wild. I mean, when we first met, you know, I think you told me, might have been 2010 or 2011, you said the f- one of the first times you tasted cider in New York City was uh, for a slow food event at my old pub. It was your old pub, yes, uh, and it was uh, for a fact. I, I, if you're fact-checking, that is true. My first public appearance is at Jimmy's down in your that back room there. Yeah, and you're a good arc for me of, of the whole cider industry and the cider revival in the Northeast. Um, just tell us about th- that time. You know, we... It, you're going to get the book, people, uncultivated, so you can read the whole story. There's a, there's a, it's a well-written book. It's kind of like a, as much of a novel as a less of a how-to-make-cider book. Um, but let's just talk, since you're here, that, that, when was it, 2010? First time you publicly tasted cider. What, what was going through your head, and what were you serving then? Well, 2010, uh, there weren't, um, uh, but I think, six cider producers in all of New York State, which is... Now we're like at something 140 or something. But um, um, I had gone to uh, 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 visit my wife's family uh, in the same town that Ben Watson lives. And, uh, and uh, I was uh, clued. Oh, I hear something. Uh, <laughs> I was clued into Spoken this, uh, this uh, Cider Days event, which occurs in November. And um, that was my first real um, um experience seeing uh uh you know hundreds of uh amateur cider makers and some professional um gathered together and really um celebrating what um what i think is the uh the 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 apple life um and i if i can make one point and i'll say it over and over that i think cider is really just uh, a small part of the apple life and uh and I felt that then and uh and uh and it's growing that little culture it's growing so the whole yeah. arc of this cider revival back to twenty ten so Ben you know you're involved with the Fra- Franklin County it's in Massachusetts cider days uh you'll be celebrating the twenty fifth anniversary this year what What was it like back then in twenty ten I mean it's been going on for many years already. It, I mean, a lot of it is similar. I mean, we tried to, it, when it first started, it was much more of an amateur-focused uh, competition, people who were learning how to make cider, and a lot of those 
people ended up becoming commercial cider makers, actually. Uh, but the great thing about it is that the event's always been mostly educational or tour-related or promoting agriculture. And it's uh, Franklin County, for those people who don't know it, is it's the least populated and most rural county in uh in Massachusetts, and it's also the most dem- most bluest county in Massachusetts, which is really saying something. Um, but it's uh, it's a great place, and it's just filled with orchards, and 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 it started this whole cider revival. It's really sort of the epicenter of that in the country, and um, and it's always been something that we wanted to have as a uh, a lot of free events, you know, workshops and presentations from people who are experts, and gradually. People have come in who've been commercial cider makers, and they've started participating in it too, like the big grand tasting that we do, which is the biggest event during the weekend, the uh, Cider Salon. That was my coinage back in, like, I think 2006 or something. Um, it's, just a, it's just a special event. It's different. I, I don't quite know how to explain it other, other than that, but it's different from any other cider tasting event like the Cider Summits and the I'll, I'll say that things. I think that you've got it. When people say Cider Days, the people that have been there know what it is, and I, and I love it. And just giving you a shout-out for that, but we're going to move on. And, Ron, you know, uh, you're a cider influencer first and a writer. Yep. Um, tell us about when you first met Andy. We're trying to, like, tell the arc of, of Andy's uh, cider mm-hmm. making first met Andy, it was probably in, in your place, down in uh, Jimmy's, so tasting in the back room, Cider Week. In New York City, Cider Week has been pretty important. And anything you want to say about the ciders you tasted from him? Or? Um, that was probably 4,000 cider ciders <laughs> ago, it's, but definitely it's, uh, his ciders were, were amazing. So well, you know, it, of, it does feel like that, and Ben, probably in your eyes, I mean, 4,000 ciders ago, but you know, 2011 was the first Cider Week New York and um, things were just coming together, the Apple projects and other things. But it's changed so much and, and so quickly. And, and Andy, just, just bring it to 2011, 2012. You know, the ciders that you were making. In the book, it talks about your struggles with trying to grow certain apple trees and, and your love for wild apples. But, but what were you making in 2011, 2012? And, you know, where were you getting those apples from? Mm, well, 2012 is uh, famous amongst... Northeast Orchardists as a uh, frost year. Um, so there were no apples to use that year. That's something one needs to know about apples, isn't that? Um, sometimes your, your, your star takes the year off. And um, 2011, I was still making cider in my basement, which is the um, size of the studio here with a five-foot ceiling. And um, and the dirt floor, and um, I was basically uh, an amateur cider maker. I still kind of am, and um, um, I just uh, got my license uh, then, and I was selling, I think, 150 gallons that year, which was all, you know, carboys. And um, um, little by little, we've grown, and then uh, we peaked in 2015, which just as there's years where there are no apples, there are years when there's too many and 2015 was one of those so um um we're we're sort of in between those two now and your take on things a little different i mean again you got to get the book uncultivated because it explains a lot i mean i've known you long enough to to know what to expect you know from what's in your glass and i've I've been to you know to your farm so i know your approach let's talk about um your philosophy of 
apples, wild apples, seedlings. You know, you, there's one technique where you spread the pumice from your pressed apples on the ground to, to see what grows. Let's talk a little bit about that. And your other, other guests can join in. The Andy, the, yeah. I call you the apple tree yeah. whisperer. The, I mean, to sum it up would be impossible. <laughs> I mean, really, for me, it's a, it's, a, uh, it's, a, it's a religion that's gone back hundreds of years. Uh, and, uh, I mean, not, it's not a religion, but it's a, um, pe- you know, people have been spreading seeds and growing apples from seed for since this nation was founded. And, um, um, you know, everyone knows Johnny Appleseed, but he was really you know, 200 years into uh, an American tradition, which had re- literally started at the uh, the Mayflower. Yeah. Ben? Yeah, uh, this is Ben. I was just going to add that, you know, one of the things that I wrote in my book, The Cider Hard and Sweet, is I had a lot of history in that book. And a lot of the reason for that was because uh, people couldn't import trees successfully in the days of sailing ships from England the, in the early colonial days. And uh, there were some very wealthy people who did that, but most people grew them because they were growing them for cider. They they recognized the value of seedling trees, and so farmers would have these apple trees on their farm, and and they would after they pressed cider, like Andy said, would spread out the the pumice and the seeds on the ground in nursery rows, and literally it was like an enormous nationwide agricultural experiment. And some of our amazing eating apples and other kinds of apples that have persisted to this day came up as chance seedlings from these, you know, just these farmer uh, researchers, really, in the 19th century and before. If I might say, since we are at the uh, edge of the Newtown Creek, uh, one, one of the most famous <laughs> Pippins is... Uh, was born right here in Queens, uh, or, or on the border of Brooklyn and Queens, and that's the Newtown Pippin, which is still and um, um, heavily cultivated in some some areas, like in California. And it's now being recultivated on Roosevelt Island too, right? <laughs> is it so. is it for real? Yeah, I think uh, they they planted some trees out there a few years ago to try to because it is the New York. The New York City apple, right near the Gowanus Canal. Yeah, and and tell me the year. It's some seventeen something. Uh, oh, at least I don't know that anybody really knows it because it is a yeah. pippin. It's a it's a seedling variety. Yeah. I mean, we've we've covered a lot of this this kind of the evolution of of cider revival in New York is kind of amazing, and we've done some shows about single varietal Kingston Blacks. Uh, I still think most people don't really know about any of that stuff. But Andy, your, your take is a little different. I mean, are you going for the single varieties, or you're, are you only really focusing on the, the wild apples and seedlings? Because I think you have to—you actually have to propagate. If you want a varietal, you have to propagate it. Mm. Why don't you talk to us about that? In you know, that um, process. Okay. Well, they. Uh, yeah, I'm. I myself, I'm not so interested in single variety uh, ciders. I. I don't. Uh, it's not even an option for me. Where. Uh, the way I get my apples is uh, by foraging mostly, and I do have uh, an orchard, but it's um, uh, the orchard is uh, I don't know. Essentially, it's an orphanage of uh, graft wood that I'm collecting in the wild, and um, um, every tree is different. So, of of the 350 trees I have in my orchard, they're all grafted. And some of them grafted twice, so I have like you know 500 <laughs> varieties, and it wouldn't make sense to. To make single varieties. Um, so, but when we talk about these single varieties and Newtown, you know, 
Pippin and all the stuff, someone actually is grafting them and propagating it. But that's I, I want put that out there. But I want you to say that you're not doing that. Uh, okay, <laughs> I'm not doing that. <laughs> and um, and I this is a deep book, guys. We, yeah. we got to flush it out. Um, Come on, it, I'm not doing that, and I'm not doing it. Um, not and, and for a reason. Um, um, uh, because <laughs> it relates to my apple spirituality, that um, that the apple um, is an extremely um, uh, diverse and complicated species, and, and, and in fact, uh, much more so than us than us humans uh, genetically. And um, the apple wants to um, create lots of different varieties, and um, and I, I I want to assist in that process rather than sort of uh, reduce that process or, or aid in the um, sort of, uh, I like this term because I hear it all the time now, the monetization, uh, but essentially the commoditizing of, of a particular um, uh, varieties. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't suit my purposes, and historically it hasn't. And they've always said um, variety or diversity as much as possible. In, in the book, it says you, you tried that. When you first started, what, you went and bought certain single varietals, and they didn't really work. Uh, they don't really work, although there are some varieties which um, uh, I can't deny. They, are, they make good cider. Um, they're rare. Um, uh, we're drinking a Kingston Black at the, uh, at the moment, which is a, uh, a variety famous for, uh, uh, for being single variety. Um, I... Uh, here in New York, there are uh, some varieties. Golden Russet is thought to be. I somewhat disagree, but uh, uh, one of the few apples out of literally millions that can um, uh, diverse enough that uh, one could make an interesting drink out of it. Um, and then, Ron, Ron, you're making cider, so we're drinking your Kingston Black. Tell yep. us about your cider. Um, the Kingston Black apple has a lot of complexity that just regular colony apples wouldn't have. So I think blends are very important, what Andy's talking about, finding apples that work together. But uh, some, some apples work on their own, and this is one. But still, mostly, the trend in the cider industry is that, what are we doing? We're trying to figure out what varieties work, work and people yeah. are propagating them and trying to plant them. I know some guys in the Pacific Northwest are planting like 40,000 trees or something. Ben, do you want to talk about that? Yeah, I mean, I also wanted to mention on the Kingston Black, it's it's always amazing to me how different ciders taste made by different people from Kingston Black. We had a workshop that I think uh, Darlene Hayes led uh, a couple of years ago at Cider Days, and it was a horizontal tasting of Kingston Blacks. And we had done it before several years ago with like three producers, and she had five or six it really depends on where the apples are grown. Apples are so uh, affected by terroir or local conditions, and Andy can talk way more to this, but, but it, it, it makes a huge difference, but so does the way that you're you know, making the cider. And I could look at, I could come down and look at Ron's operation, and I could see exactly what he's doing, and I could do it exactly the same way with apples that I'm either growing or even ones that I'm buying if he were growing them, buying from him. And I would have something that would taste very different from this. It, it really is amazing how variable it can be. Andy, what are ciders that you drink? You know, you got turned on, and again, to the book, I'm trying to 
promote the book, Uncultivated. You got turned on years ago by, you tasted some Farnham Hill ciders. Um, wh- what are ciders that you actually like and, and drink? Um, you can be blunt. <laughs> okay, I'm going to answer that, but I want to just um, say one thing, I think, a uh, continuation of what Ben was saying. And um, uh, this is, uh, I think, an easy way for the... Uh, the layperson to think of cider in that it's uh, it's it's made by three species, right? There's the yeast, the apple, and the human, and uh, and uh, I, I'd like to think that um, that none of them are really dominant, but if any, the apple <laughs> should be dominant. Um, um, but uh, yeah, I, I wanted to throw that out there. I I, I think of. Um, um, that is a sort of easy way to introduce people to cider. That there's, um, um, well, I mean, the we three know that. of us. Are we know working. that in the world of wine, people talk about the fruit and terroir, and that's kind of been pretty classic understanding for a long time now. Yeah. So um, you're talking about cider the same way. Uh, yeah, and um, ideally, all three of those uh, live a similar life um, or uh, or practice. Um, and uh, this is where I feel like um, I've been so influenced by um, apples. As uh, as uh, I want to, I, <laughs> I don't know. That sounds weird, but I want to emulate uh, the way they've um, sort of acclimated to different areas, and um, and um, and that just sort of affects the way I make cider too, as a um, my relationship with uh, yeast, for instance. Um, um, sort of cultivating yeast, but sort of uncultivating it as well. I, um, I think I don't um, sulfide no. it. No, it's good. We we can go really deep, and and um, but I want to just go back to a couple of things in the book. Um, you talked about when you first got this farm, the the former owner told you about economy of the place, and part of your journey was where, where you've come to as a cider maker, as a as a farmer. You try, you figured out kind of like what you could do with the farm that you were on. Okay, well, I'm still one question back. <laughs> West County and Farnham Hill were hugely influential for me. Um, um, what's the next question? I don't know. <laughs> Economy of place from your book. Um, this is his first radio interview for yeah, the book. Yeah, if, so. you, if you haven't figured it out. Uh, um, uh, so I, I live on a farm which is historically a, a homestead farm, and uh, they had uh, dating back and. By the way, Aaron Burr was the lawyer on the deed of the Homestead Farm in 1817. It was sold from uh, Bayard, which is another famous New York family, um, broken into a small piece uh, bought by the Browns, who are a family who owned my farm between 1817 and 1906. And they were basically, you know, little diversified farms like you see all over New England. And... um, uh, I know they had a horse, um, they had a sleigh, they had, uh, I'm assuming, um, a cow, maybe uh, uh, chickens. Uh, actually, I know they had chickens. Uh, um, and they tapped their maple trees. They, and, of course, cider was part of that life. Um, and, um, uh, you know, I've been living there 12 years, and I've... Uh, just now, I'm just like a freshman, um, understanding the the genius of that system, um, and um, I'll be there in my next 12 years. Maybe I'll be a sophomore, uh, uh, but it's it's a, uh, really a brilliant um, uh, way of life. I mean, just the the farm, the way it was set up from the 
rock walls to everything. It's uh, there's nothing that's uh, not considered. You know, it, it, you've also talking about s- small businesses and, and communities and s- subsistence farming. And I know there's a movement. There's a book I read, Michael Foley, um, a, a farming book. He talks about the idea that what's wrong with being a subsistence farmer. It sounds like that's what small farms were like. Is is that was that the experience you're, you're starting to come to that? you feel that you just want to make live and survive off your farm? I would love to do that, but we're living in a different era. And, um, um, you know, my health insurance alone is like 11000 a year, and they don't cover anything. So it's like if I, <clears throat> that's just, you know, before I go to the doctor. And, uh, so you can't swap a jug of scrumpy for no, you can't. And uh, taxes are the same. And um, you pay taxes as a farmer. Um, you you do, uh, especially in Lower New York when uh, this close to the city. And um, um, so yeah, we have to make some like grown up money, which is <laughs> hard to do when uh, you just want to walk around foraging. So um, um, it's been um, it's been a real um, challenge that's um, trying to figure out how uh, we can bridge the economy I want to live in with the uh, and the and the sort of the old ways of doing things and the and what is now um, just this constant escalating uh, uh, cost of living and um, so I, I think cider is a, a, a brilliant opportunity for um, particularly small producers for that. Um, it's one of the, um, well, not yet. It's not been reduced to um, um, large-scale commoditization. As most most people who drink cider tend to uh, like the diversity and. Um, of all the different producers and all the different little lands and stuff like that. And that, of course, you can't scale up. So, Ben? Yeah, I, I think that the, I mean, the, to me, the, the growth of, uh, of cider has just been phenomenal over the past year. We were talking about 2010, 2011, and I've, been trying to keep track since for for the past 20 years or more of the cider producers in the country and Andy was talking about just the growth in New York state which has probably been more rapid but just the sheer number all over the country I was there probably a thousand cider makers around the country now or more and uh you can't you know you can't keep track of it it really is amazing at how organically it's grown and then in the past few years just how rapidly people have been coming in with really good stuff too and ron you're out there selling cider now so i was saying that one big change since 2011 is that more and more typical restaurants mainstream bars and restaurants have at least one line of of cider but you're out there competing against a lot of different types of ciders yep there are a lot of bigger brands where we're always rotating with trying to you know encourage people to Shop local. So even in Connecticut, you might be the local brand, but you're alternating with yeah. the national brands. National brands, big brands, but we make it right there. So hopefully, some restaurants realize staying nearby is good, and I think that they're they're picking up on that. I was going to say it's uh, um, you at least have the advantage of not having national brands moving into your backyard and being quote unquote local. It's true. <laughs> Sorry for that. Yeah, people no, there's have, a lot of big big things at stake here. People say, oh, you should sell in New York State. And I'm like, I could never compete with 
with the ciders here. We always like to so say up so in great ones. Sorry, we we always used to say like to say up in New England that you know for for years we were saying you know you're talking about ah oh, the big national brands of cider and it's like you realize that still even now cider is like just a pimple on the ass of the beer market. I mean the beer market is so much bigger than cider and and it probably always will be, but. But it's you know you, your your perspective changes when you get into the cider world. No, and that's great. Hey, this is a great start. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a minute on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Super duper awesome place. Roberta's is a very, 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 very proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. We're also super awesome. Thank you, Heritage. All right. Hey, hey, hey. Welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. Check it out, heritageradionetwork.org. It's our big summer membership push. You can become a member, business member, and a lot of benefits, uh, including listening to great shows like this one. All right, HeritageRadioNetwork.org. So we got Andy Brennan, author of Uncultivated, is uh, editor, Ben Watson from Chelsea Green Publishing, and Ron Sansone from uh, Spoken Spy Cider in uh, Connecticut, and we're drinking his cider. So, uh, Ron, you're going to give us another cider. You said it was weird. We uh, first well, had a single varietal, Bl- Kingston Black from Spoken Spy. I don't think it's that weird, but it's a blood orange pomegranate with pink lady apples. So it's a single variety with additional fruit. Is that is that controversial, Andy? Oh, Are you okay. okay with mixing fruit? Uh, well, I make a mixed. Um, I, I call it a fruit wine, um, which is uh, yeah, a grape and. Um, that's the that's the apinet. Yeah, I'm the one with elderberry. So I mean, who am I to talk? <laughs> Although I, um, you know, obviously I'm a, I'm an idealist, um, um, and I don't live up to my own ideals. Um, so even if people hate me um i i do too you know talking about the evolution of of the just the new york area cider market just since 2011 when cider week started we were just talking about competition for draft handles that that's a whole new thing i mean that's kind of like cider cutting into beer but i feel like that that already now there's a big difference between the places that cider sold and served whether it's a, a, a bottle shop a wine shop or a restaurant and, um, you know, kind of like beer versus wine. It's almost like we're at that point now. Um, Want to talk about that, Andy, in particular, like the, the choice you have of a distributor now. You're, you're, you're being distributed by wine distributors, not by a beer distributor. Um, do you see your approach as a little different than other cider makers? Because some, I feel like some ciders are being represented as a beer, sold on draft in a pint. Others I, think, are, I think a lot varies greatly state to state, too. Mm-hmm. Just the way things are handled, the way the distributors do things. And I mean... Yours, I see yours is like shelved like wine. It's like almost completely different than where the other ciders are. So, 
So he gets to be in a special place. And yeah. the, the regulation's different from state to state. Yeah. 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 It, it yeah, affects and, things greatly. Yeah. In New Hampshire, we had, in fact, I testified before the legislature one year, and it didn't pass, but but we were trying, a friend and I were trying to change the definition of cider because if you had a really high quality, like a French cider that was 4%, I think we were trying to bring in Christian Durand's cider from Normandy, wonderful cider, but it was 4% alcohol, and you were forced to go through the beer wholesalers because of the ABV on the, on the, on the cider. So there's a, there was a lot of misunderstanding back then about what cider is and how it's made. It really is more like a wine. I mean, if you want to talk about how to make it um, than beer. But there's always been that uh, sort of confusion, uh, you know, for, for a long time, really for 100 years or more. I mean, draft ciders you know, were thought of more like casks of beer or something like that in England. And, and uh, um, you know, that still persists. I mean, is it beer or is it wine? Well, it's neither. It's cider. It's a different animal, different cat. Ron, I know you, you got your love of cider from London, didn't you? Yeah, I went to school in London, drank a lot of cider, came home. Now I'm making it. So. And what, what were the ciders that you were drinking there like that inspired I'd, you? It was just in pubs, draft ciders, not too crazy. I didn't have a car couldn't get out to the scrumpy lands but i've gone back and went to herefordshire and visited all the great cider makers it's definitely inspirational let's talk about the inspirational styles of cider so andy i know you've you're making things like appinet which is like your mixed fruit drink but a couple years ago we had a party in brooklyn and you brought your scrumpy you know what is scrumpy and, and why make it and it seems like it's something that people really like uh, well, it's, my definition of scrumpy may not be the same as um, where the word originated in, uh, which is the southwest portion of England, um, known as the West Country. And um, my understanding of scrumpy, at least in that tradition, I've never been. Um, maybe you could speak to this one. Is the um, they just the locals show up with? Um, big jugs and fill yeah, it up? Yeah, uh, it's pretty raw, pretty strong. It kind of gets you in the gut. Yeah, and I mean, the etymology of it is the, the word scrump, to scrump. The verb to scrump just means, essentially, you're going around and gleaning somebody's apples after they've fallen off the tree. And either they don't want them or you get to them before the, the tree's owners get to them. And, and you're making scrumpy out of apples that you've scrumped. Which, which wouldn't be illegal in America. Because you can't work with drops. Right. Well, technically. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's so scrumpy. But you make, you make it, Andy, and, and, and it's really good. To you, it was a treasured item that you brought to this event that you said, what, you only sell through your CSA? or your, uh, Yeah. Um, so that's what we drink at home. So when we're bottling, we try our best, although if you look at our bottles, you'd think I was lying, um, to actually not pull up as much yeast from the, uh, known as the lees, at the bottom of the barrels before bottling. And um, you leave behind about um, uh, one twentieth of the of that uh, barrel. And um, you have, in some years, up to 30 barrels, so one twentieth of 30 barrels is, is over a barrel, and um, and uh, we just mix it all together, and that's what we drink um, at home. And um, we don't drink so much, 
<laughs> um, or we didn't. And um, it's very farmerly. <laughs> like you're, you're basically drinking the dregs yourself, and you're selling the rest, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. And the thing about the, the I'm, I was interested in the book too. That that uh, you know, leaves are are incredibly healthy too, and with all the yeast in there, and and you sell to. You were you're providing leaves to Blue Hill, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, they they still do. They pick up. Um, I uh, so I, I make um, now the really thick yeast at the bottom of the ciders. Now I pour all the the leaves into one container and let that settle. And then above that is what I drink. And then the really thick stuff, I use to culture my own yeast. And I'll. I'll um, and I have about uh, 20 or 30 of these uh, one-gallon jugs of really thick stuff. And um, um, usually when I'm culturing my yeast for the following year, I'll, I'll just take a sip from that bottle and see which is the one I like the most, and that's kind of the starter for the year. Um, but that means I have a, you know, a 19 left over, and um, yeah, Dan Barber. And then Blue Hill was, um, um, he came up with this, a uh, recipe for um, um, braising pork, and I was a vegetarian, so I don't even really know what he was doing. But um, so we went, <laughs> we went and did a little talk um, to the staff there, and he, he they brought out the um, what they had made from the scrumpy, and uh, it was just yeah, it was <laughs> scrumpy, super yeasty, super yeasty lees. It's super yeasty lees, and there's a tradition of using it in France and even in uh, Canada um, for things like soup stocks and salad dressings. Um, um, yeah. That's great. And Ben, you know, in your work as an editor, you said you had another book out by, by a, a French, I mean, a, a Canadian cider maker. What, what is different about the Quebec approach uh, traditions? It's, a, it's another tradition i mean it's a it's a long-standing tradition in quebec too i mean it's a great food culture up there obviously with all kinds of fermentation you know breads and cheese and ciders and beers uh that they that they make up there but this fellow uh claude jolicoeur did a book that we published a few years ago through chelsea green called the new cider makers companion or the new cider makers handbook rather and um it's it's really a good primer for people who are a little bit more serious than the people who bought my book. I mean, mine was focused on people who just wanted to make it at home. I just wanted to get people started. You know, throw it in a jug. Here's the basics. You don't need to make a big investment. And Claude goes the further step beyond in terms of testing and the scientific rationale of this thing. And I think a lot of, I don't know, Ron can maybe speak to it too, that whether it's useful or not, but but I think a lot of people have mentioned to me that they thought that was a, a, a book that needed to be written. Yeah, Claude's book has a lot of uh, like DIY projects if you're trying to scale up your home production. Has like graphs, charts, yep. lots of really great stuff. And and Ben, also at, just give a shout out to Chelsea Green Publishing. So you guys, I mean, we've we've had on the Laura Tenike, the the Hop Growers Handbook. You've got a lot of kind of aggy. Farming. I think Michael Foley's book, Farming. For yeah, I edited that book too. What's the, what's the full title of that? Farming for the Long Haul. Yeah, there was a lot of it's similarities book. between yeah. what he said and what Andy's saying. Yeah, I mean, his book was really is really a fascinating book about um, what we can learn from indigenous and peasant farmers, and uh, and maybe lessons we can all learn to make agriculture more regenerative and moving forward as we have climate 
challenges and things. But yeah, we do a lot of books on ag, and we also do food books. And one of the the areas that we focused on years ago was uh, we had this wild guy, uh, Sandor Katz, show up at our offices, <laughs> our old office, knows him. and he and he came in with a saddle stitched little book that he called Wild Fermentation. And he said, you know, and he brought in a a, a jar of uh, of kraut that he had made, and we passed it around and ate with our hands out of the out of the jar. And we said, we got to publish this book, and that was, geez, I don't know, twenty years ago. And and since then, we've really focused on all things fermented. That's really sort of our niche. So we've got books on, uh, you know, making, make uh, mead like a Viking, brew beer like a Yeti, <laughs> you know. And most of them are how-to. As you say, Andy's book really isn't a how-to. It's a really deep, fascinating study uh, into, you know, wild apples and cider, but it isn't, it isn't going to tell you how to make cider, at least not directly. You know, your book, Andy, Uncultivated, it, it's not a how-to. It's almost a how-not-to because <laughs> I, I, I had a nightmare. I started reading it the other night, and I had a night. It was more of a vivid dream, and I, and I, I could feel the stress of, of as you were learning about things. I mean, gosh, you must have been – your ass was on the line so many times. W- yeah, well, and you were able to s- s- survive this. Well, we we started. Um, you know, my background um, professionally was in architecture. So um, uh, when we started, uh, what was then the cidery in two thousand eight, it was uh, during that economic crash, and uh, as you know, that was the housing market was heavily affected, and so. Um, um, and then we had just moved as well, so our entire investment, uh, our, our life savings, basically was in a and it was in a property which immediately plummeted in values. Um, so yeah, we had a lot of stress um, going on. I, um, if y- you sense that in the book, um, I just say welcome to my world because <laughs> I, I still am a high, very stressed, and uh, uh, I never. Uh, feel like um, on top of things or have things uh, figured out. Well, when, when I was at your place, it was 2016. You know, you walked the hillside with us. You showed us how you had put you put the crushed pumice on the ground, and you had seedlings growing up. Um, it was pretty. That was eye opening to me. I, I I had assumed that my grandfather was kind of did his own small farming, and he pruned trees. So I figured that most side orchards looked like prune trees, and and um, Graft, you know, grafting was going on. Um, I didn't know that this was really how trees grew. <laughs> Apple trees grew in particular. Um, tell us about the moment in the book when you discovered that that was really your your destiny. This big birth of tree moment. You you saw old cider trees that were thriving in an area where you couldn't really plant things to grow. Yeah, this is true. Like I mentioned earlier, I live on the edge of the Hudson Valley and the Catskills, and the Hudson Valley is world famous for apple production, but it's a particular type of apple production. And in fact, there's there might be as many wild apples in the Catskills as there are farmed apples in the Hudson Valley, but you would never know it. Um, and um, I, I think um, we as you know, this relates to um, the economy, and um, we, we we expect a lot out of um, um, farms and apples, and um, and so the advice from the experts um, for me as I was starting out growing apples was 
solely uh, based on the information of the of those farmed apples and um, what you know what the experts know about that particular um, thing. I mean, it's um, it's uh, the analogy I use early in the book is um, um, the the wolf and the dog. Um, uh, the, the difference between, um, say, the uh, that you know that Paris Hilton dog and uh, and a wolf <laughs> is is a, I think is a good analogy between a farmed apple and a wild apple. Um, and uh, I live in the land of wild apples, and uh, everybody, including uh, the local Cornell station, uh, just completely overlooked it. Um, um, you know, but your approach. I mean, when I you know, studied wine for years, and when you talk about the best wines in the world, we're talking about making the best ciders in the world. We're not just talking about making a beverage. When you talk about making the best wines in the world, people recognize that there's certain terroirs, there's certain types of grapes, there's certain places where the, the wines grow better, and there's also realize that there's a limited yield. So are, are, are people getting that in the cider industry? Consumers realizing that there's a hierarchy of, of better ciders, better cider makers? Do you feel like you're in that hierarchy? Uh, I I don't feel like I'm in that hierarchy. I, I have this reputation for being in it. Um, I in that I believe solely <laughs> isn't from my skill as a cider maker as much as it is the apples. Uh, I would give that, you know, there was the uh, there's the Diane Flints and the uh, and the um, uh, the Steve and Lulus and the, the Terry Maloney's. I I, I really. Um, uh, Eve Cidery is another great one. Um, I feel like they're approaching it at a higher level than myself. I, I kind of, myself, am more involved with what I think of as sort of a uh, home production, but using an apple which just happens to be, I think, superior. Ben? I was going to say that, um, you know, we talked about this a little on, off the air, but... Uh, uh, it isn't always easy for people to grow apples like we tried the Kingston Black Cider. And uh, I know that apple grows well for some people, but it's a really fussy apple to grow. And these are European cider apples that people have brought over. And Andy talks about, you know, considering them in the in, in, in his business early on. But, uh, you know, using the seedling naturalized apples, place-based apples, they're not only can be more disease resistant naturally, but also better adapted to the area. And also they're sort of becoming, I think a lot of people are realizing in the cider world, our North American cider apples. And if we could discover more of them before they're all gone and really evaluate them, even people who aren't you know, foraging them, we could find new varieties just like they used to do you know, 200 years ago or 150 years ago and and come up with a new class of North American cider apples. And I think that's, to a certain extent, what Andy is doing and what Shaxbury and, and other people have, have done. And I find that very interesting. And uh, some people don't get it or they don't think it's worthwhile. Other people think, yeah, this is legitimate. Let's Let's see where this goes. Let's experiment. Great. And, uh, Ron, we're enjoying your cider. How did you decide to make ciders with other fruits besides apples? Um, Where is your sources coming from? You know, you're in Connecticut. You're kind of a pioneer there. uh, It's definitely not local. 
I mean, the Pink Lady apples were from Connecticut, but everything else is uh, not local. So I just kind of look toward uh, cocktails, mixology, what's going on, what's trendy. I mean, you got to keep up with that. It's different than uh, if I had wild apples, I would just do that. But we should go to we can go to Middletown, Connecticut, yeah. near Wesleyan University. I have no trees, but no, you have no a, pineapple trees. You have a tasting no pineapples. room. Pineapples. <laughs> no, no. You have a tasting room. We have a tasting room, and it's always uh, interesting things. So. And a lot of it really is. This is Ben again. And let's pour Just, one more. If you, you have yeah, one more. For us and a lot taste. of it, I'm really fascinated by the difference in marketing, and a lot of it, like everything else, is driven by marketing and what people's expectations are. And for a long time. People's expectations were, well, cider needs to be appley and sweet. It needs to taste like apple juice, and it needs to be sweet, and it needs to be, you know, a certain pro- flavor profile. And I think even though, you know, they're mixing in different fruits and doing different things, I don't think there's that perception anymore. There are sour ciders, and there are wild ciders, wild, you know, natural yeast ciders, and it's a, it's a much, much bigger universe now. And and I think that also um, relates a lot to the um, foraging and the spreading of pumice and letting trees grow up. I mean, the diversity of um, apples uh, produce. You know, there's the there's still so many things that we've never tasted. Um, if we allow trees to grow the way they're supposed to grow, um, yeah, John Bunker, who is um, deserves um, a shout out, I think. Um, he runs Fedco Trees in Maine, but um, he's always been a, a great um, um, uh, apple uh, hound. And there's some there's some just in, just insane varieties that he brings to Cider Days every year that nobody's ever had. Nobody would ever think an apple could taste like that. And we're if, if we're on the trail, remember there was that stalking the wild asparagus. If we're on the trail of the wild apple, I know that that in the Finger Lakes region, there's some old national forests where there's there's happened to be they got lucky they never there's a bunch of trees wild trees and near your area and up in Maine there's how how much of our northeast has wild apples and and are there pockets that we should be protecting or be paying attention to? My own experience is um, well the Catskills are like I said is they're the gold mine they're a gold mine but um, I grew up near West Virginia, and I know them to grow well there, but I've never seen a place like uh, the coast of Maine. Um, and, and even in the high tide mark, um, you'll find apple trees uh, growing on cliffs. Um, um, but I would say everything from um, Quebec, probably down to uh, uh, Kentucky and maybe even the mountains of North Carolina, um, where we're living in one of the greatest apple places in the world. And if the apple has the ability to escape the farm and go wild, I mean, what better proof do you need to know that we're like, this is it. This is the place where we should be growing apples. Yeah, I mean, they're everywhere, really. I mean, I I just, as I said, I just moved recently and... Uh, and uh, to another town and during springtime you notice the apples and you don't see them virtually any other time of the year but in a good year when you get blossoms and they don't get frozen out 
you just say, I never knew there was an apple tree there. You're just driving around in the country, and they really are everywhere that there used to be farming, which was mm-hmm. almost everywhere at one time. And uh, I think that the value of them, we, you know, we talk about, well, why are these any good? I mean, a lot of them really taste awful, but it's, they taste awful because they have natural tannins in them. And so they're bitter, just like the bittersweet and bittersharp varieties that you get from England and Europe. But they're ones that grow over here, and they're, they've got genetic diversity, and, and that's what results in, you know, these guys can talk more about it than I can, but it, it results in structure, you know, uh, to the cider, and it really makes a more interesting drink. And, and lastly, Ron, uh, this last cider oh. report, Spoken Spy, what is it? There's some grape in here. It's grape. It's a grape cider. Grape cider. It's, it's a, a nice different. drink. It's uh, very easy to drink, 5.1%. People seem to like it. And then to wrap it up, I mean, we, we, we do more and more cider episodes on Beer Sessions Radio. Look back, that name John Bunker, we did a show with him, 2015. Ben Watson, we did a show with him, 2015. Uh, we've had Ron on a couple times. We've had a number of State of the Cider and Cider Week episodes. And our, our great uh, series, On the Road with Beer Sessions Radio, we were with a number of cider makers, including Andy Brennan and... Uh, and uh, John Reynolds up at Black Duck in Finger Lakes. So there's a lot of knowledge out there on, on our show. So keep checking it out on Heritage Radio Network. Just Google Cider <laughs> and Heritage Radio Network, and you can see a lot, lot of our shows. But thank you guys for coming on. If anyone wants to say anything else, last chance for comments. Um, but otherwise, I would say, uh, what's the name of the book, Ben? <laughs> Uncultivated. And the uh, subtitle is, is actually Ben's contribution. Uh, Wild Apples, Real Cider, and the Complicated Art of Making a Living. And the last question is, in the book you said you had a Toyota, but on the cover of the book it's, there's a Ford. So That's, uh, that's the dump truck. You got a dump truck. <laughs> yeah. Last um, question. Okay, so in, yeah. your old, your, in the book, this is a quiz for Andy, you had a small pickup truck. How many bushels would fill the back of that pickup truck when you're out there foraging? A uh, little tiny truck like the Toyota, about, uh, about an, a bin, which is like 19, 20 bushels, um, equivalent of about 800 pounds. How long would that take you? Uh, on a good year, um, a half a day, uh, on a bad year, uh, a month last year, I uh, made one barrel from forage fruit. And Ben, it's a been interesting. I mean, there's a whole nother show is making the book. I know you're the editor and you guys work closely together. Um, but thank you guys. I, I really recommend that if you like to read, it's not a how-to book. It, it's a reading book. If you're interested in s- small farms and, and struggles and, uh, you know, a new vision for what uh, apple making is, read the book on Cultivated. But I'll, I'll shout out this. Guys, Annie's just catching up. I mean, wine's already been there. Natural wine is, is all the craze. People are like, oh, this is how my grandparents made wine, and now we're coming back to it. So if you're interested in natural wine, you go to the Raw, the raw Wine Fest, well, there are cider makers doing it, and, and Andy's book will, will be right in that uh, discussion with you guys. So check it out, Uncultivated, uh, Chelsea Green Publishing. And thanks so much for joining me, everybody here. Ben Watson, Ron Sansone, Andy Brennan, I'm Jimmy Carboni. Thanks for joining us. Big shout-out to producer Justin Kennedy, engineer Matt Patterson, assistant producer Aaliyah Papes. I'm Jimmy Carboni. Thanks for joining us on the Heritage Radio Network. We'll catch you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. 
Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.